From beautiful Cape Cod, Massachusetts, this is Returns on Wellbeing, the podcast that brings you the latest and best thinking from today's business and healthcare leaders. We share strategies, tactics, and information that help employers boost their bottom lines and address two of their biggest concerns, the cost of healthcare coverage and the engagement of their workforce. To guide us on this quest, here's our host, Jim Purcell. Welcome to Returns on Wellbeing. Today we have with us Rajiv Kumar, a medical doctor who presently serves as both the President and Chief Medical Officer of Virgin Pulse Institute. Virgin Pulse Institute provides its clients with advice and research on health, well-being, and employee engagement. Dr. Kumar joined Virgin Pulse in 2016 following its acquisition of ShapeUp, an employee well-being company that he founded in Rhode Island in 2006. Our paths crossed a number of times over the following seven years. In a decade, Dr. Kumar brought his startup from a dorm room idea to a global company, serving over two million participants around the world. Rajiv, it's good to be talking with you again. Well, thanks, Jim. Glad to be here. Tell us how ShapeUp started and why you took the time out of what had to have been a very demanding schedule to engage in that. You know... uh I was a medical student at the time, and um, I had just started my medical uh, training and and education, and I was immediately struck by uh, the fact that almost everything I was learning was focused on how to treat people after they get sick. Um, and then if they have, if they're sick with a chronic condition, how to manage that chronic condition over time. And it was just sort of surprising to me that there was no focus on prevention. Uh, there was no focus on disease reversal. And as I started to see patients in the clinic, I, I realized that almost all of my patients were struggling with how to lead a healthy lifestyle, how to eat healthier, how to be physically active, uh, how to lower their blood pressure, lower their cholesterol, uh, and so forth. And we didn't seem to have any good tools or any good methodology for these patients other than to tell them to join a gym uh, or, uh, you know, join Weight Watchers or, you know, eat healthier, right? But we didn't have any real tools or anything prescriptive. And it just seemed to me that we were, we were resigning ourselves to the fact that ultimately these patients would be on medication and that was really the only thing we could do for them. And that just seemed wrong and, and sort of uh, backwards to me. So I became very interested in prevention, uh, particularly um, in obesity and, and diabetes and heart disease prevention. And so I just started to work with some patients and I formed a local kind of small nonprofit group called Shape Up Rhode Island uh, to kind of create a physical activity campaign to get people up and moving. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was designed to be nothing more than kind of an annual, you know, eight week challenge where employees would form teams or not even employees, but community members would form teams and, you know, compete against each other to, to walk. And we sent out pedometers and, you know, it, w- it was kind of a glorified walking challenge, if you will. People tend to isolate, and you got them into groups where they could encourage each other and and feel a part of something. I assume that was part of your your formula, right? That was actually the main part of the formula, Jim. So um, what I noticed in my interactions with patients is that while most of them were failing at changing their lifestyle, a few of them did succeed. And when I talked to those individuals and tried to understand what did they do differently that helped them to be successful, they always said something similar. They said, you know, I did this as a group with a bunch of my mm-hmm. colleagues. You know, I joined a Weight Watchers group and I had that social support. You know, I had an exercise buddy and we, we kind of kept each other accountable and honest. And so it was always that social thread. And that was really the aha moment for me was that, you know, we're very 
bad at changing our behavior as humans when we do it alone, but we tend to be much more successful when we do it as a group or as a team. And we've seen that model in healthcare. We, you know, we have the Weight Watchers, we have the Alcoholics Anonymous, or the Narcotics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in primary care, we do you know diabetes groups, and, and we do groups for expecting mothers, and you know, we kind of leverage that um, that that kind of. Um, kind of approach. And so I knew that it was going to be successful. And, uh, so that's, that's sort of what, uh, what my, my, my model was, how do we bring people together, leverage social support, accountability, and a little bit of peer pressure, but in a healthy way. Yep. And at some point I'm going to ask you more about this, but that fits right within a, the idea of employers having a culture of well-being to support specific programs, right? That's absolutely right. Um, you know, and it was surprising to me, you know, the program was originally launched as a direct-to-consumer kind of community initiative, mm-hmm. but the employers locally started to latch onto it, and, and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Rhode Island was one of the first to, to kind of say, we want to make this available to our employees because we're trying to build a culture of help, and this is a program that's not just helping people exercise and lose weight, but it's bringing them together and helping them to form more cohesive relationships, and that's really what we're all about. Right. I, I think we at Blue Cross Rhode Island were one of your initial sponsors as well is that right that's right yeah. uh, blue cross uh, was actually the founding sponsor and, and supported the organization for years and uh, it actually continues to be a client of ours which we're, uh, we're thrilled by so um, definitely a leading community organization that's kind of been at the forefront of employee and community well-being you know i, I wish i wish ceos would understand the importance of of their personal and passionate involvement in something you know part of Part of me when I was a CEO, I, I was a little shy about that sort of thing and thought, you know, who am I? Why, why would my involvement be such a big deal? And it really wasn't about me as much as it, it's about the leader of an organization taking the time to do it and making an impression. Uh, it took me a while to understand that, but I think CEO direct passionate involvement in employee well-being is a critically important thing. So Shape Up Expanded, tell us about that. So uh, employers uh, kind of, you know, uh, latching onto it was a surprise to me, uh, but it was a welcome surprise. And we sort of scaled the organization by getting more and more employers to offer this to their employees. Um, Eventually, we sort of reached a a cap on our growth because we were in Rhode Island and it was a nonprofit organization and we just couldn't fund the development of the technology and we couldn't really expand outside of Rhode Island. So what we did is we we spun off ShapeUp as a for-profit company to go and kind of tackle this opportunity of, of promoting employee well-being in a social way, using technology uh, across across the country and eventually around the world. Uh, so I actually um, dropped out of medical school for three years um, with my uh, friend and co-founder, Dr. Brad Weinberg. And he and I, you know, we had no real experience in business or, or doing anything like that. This, but we got so excited about the idea and passionate about changing people's lives that we, we decided to, to go and pursue this. And so we went out and we raised capital uh, originally from, from friends and family that were you know, really generous and believed in us. And then eventually from, from venture capitalists that, that ended up putting you know, tens of millions of dollars into the company. And, uh, and we grew it uh, you know, block by block, step by step. Um, you know, we, we started in Rhode Island and, and expanded out from there. Uh, to the point where we eventually got to be over 100 uh, employees. Um, you know, we worked with employers all around the world. We had a platform that was available in 15 languages, and uh, it, really, it really scaled nicely. And I think that's really the beauty of this type of technology. Uh, in what other countries uh, did you become involved other than the United States? 
So we ended up having participants in over 180 different countries. Hmm. And the reason we were able to do that is we were selling to very large multinational companies based in the U.S. So companies like Hewlett Packard that have employees in over 100 countries, uh, Bank of America and so forth. And they were rolling this out, not just for the U.S. employees, but for their employees all around the world. Uh, eventually, you were acquired by Virgin Pulse. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, almost two years ago, uh, two years ago next month, uh, we were acquired by, by Virgin Pulse. Why did you sell out to Virgin Pulse? That's a good question. Uh, you know, the, uh, Virgin Pulse was always um, our top competitor in the market since the day we started the company. Uh, they were there, I think, a year or two before us in the space, and, and we competed head to head against them uh, pretty fiercely. You know, we always respected them, but we had sort of a different approach. Virgin Pulse was very much focused on extrinsic motivation. How do you leverage uh, financial rewards to motivate people mm -hmm. and change their behavior? And we were very motivated by intrinsic rewards. You know, how do we tap into, uh, you know, social dynamics and, and people's innate desire to be healthy? And, and can you do that without paying them? And I think over time, while we were both kind of entrenched in our way of thinking and we both had you know, kind of drank our own Kool-Aid, uh, we realized that the answer sort of lies in between. Uh, and employers had sort of figured this out. They were, they were yes, they were promoting social competition and, and gamification and, and kind of no-cost no ways to engage their employees. But at the same time, they had realized that, you know, some money can help get people's attention and pick them up when they fall and keep them engaged over time. And so as we kind of moved to the center, we realized that we had more in common than we had, uh, you know, different. Um, when Virgin Pulse approached us, we took a close look at their technology. We realized they had a better technology platform right. and it was a much more scalable offering. So we said, you know what, if we can't beat them, let's join them. Uh, we can bring our DNA, our, our beliefs and concepts and, and ideas and, and kind of bring that to them and, and we can combine the two and, and we can be a very successful company together. And this showed us a vision uh, for strong growth and, and international growth and so forth. So we became part of Virgin Pulse. And then at the same day, um, Virgin Pulse also bought a company called Global Corporate Challenge based in Melbourne, Australia. So it was actually a three-way com combination. Uh, and we were very excited about that global aspect. So it was kind of our social DNA, global challenges, global DNA, combined with Virgin Pulse's technology and, and understanding of mobile technology and gamification. And we brought all that together into one really, really great company. So I believe you said that you think it's somewhere in the middle between financial incentives and social socialization. Um, I, I know that the whole idea of the financial incentives versus penalties is pretty controversial. Um, and I, I guess where I've come out on it at this point is that, you know, the financial is a good thing to get people interested and get them involved, but it's pretty hard. It, it, it's, it's, it doesn't work very well to pay somebody to get change their lifestyle. They have to do it because of intrinsic desire. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's directionally correct. And I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, as far as the penalty piece, um, it is very controversial. Uh, our research shows that um, when employers, you know, have penalties in place for non-participation, uh, participation goes up significantly. And in fact, of all the levers that an employer can pull, that's the strongest and most impactful lever for driving participation. Uh, that being said, 
uh, it's not very pol politically popular. It's mm -hmm. not a great way to treat your employees. And so if you're trying to be a, a place where employees want to choose to be and feel like they, their employer cares about them and, you know, is investing in their well-being and, and is looking out for them, that's kind of sends the opposite message. Um, so, so we don't recommend penalties to, to employers. Um, we really like the carrot approach uh, better. Now, as far as, you know, what's the right way to offer incentives, we believe really strongly in behavioral economics. Uh, we believe that, you know, people can be motivated by money, but you have to do it and offer it in a very smart way. And, and ultimately, the underlying activity you're asking them to do or set of activities have to be fun and engaging and something that they would do on their own, even if you didn't pay them. Right. Um, so we, we kind of often tell employers, limit how much money you spend, don't overpay. Um, give people incentives for staying engaged, uh, make it equitable so everybody has the opportunity to earn it. Give them a lot of choice. So it's not one thing they have to do, you know, take your health assessment or get your biometric screening. Let them choose between things that they might want to do. I want to track my eating habits. I want to lower my stress. I want to improve my sleep. Let them be rewarded and feel successful for whatever their personal goals are. And then kind of keep that going over time. Allow them to continue to earn rewards as they continue to stay engaged and, and make improvements. And then give them choice even in the reward. You know, maybe allow them to donate the reward to a, to a charity um, or to, to buy a gift card, uh, you know, for their kids or something that really might be meaningful and motivational to them. So it doesn't have to always be kind of cash in your bank account or health premium reduction or something like that. There's kind of a variety of ways you can motivate people without kind of spending a ton of money. Right. That makes sense. It uh, I, I think a combination of the two within, you know, a social support or culture, if you will, that over time increasingly encourages employees to do more and more makes sense. Um, tell us what, okay, you, you became part of Virgin Pulse Institute. Uh, what are, what are your roles with Virgin Pulse Institute today? So my primary role is to oversee a team of 10 data scientists and data engineers. So uh, for a company of our size, we've made a, a fairly significant investment in uh, analytics and, and data science. And it's because we believe that there are uh, insights to be harnessed uh, from the data that we're collecting. We're, this is sort of a big data play. We collect uh, roughly 7 billion data points every single month about our participants. Uh, and those data points come from health assessments, they come from wearable um, devices that are, uh, our, our participants are you know, kind of using. Uh, they come from medical claims that we might take in from a client. They come from employee surveys, uh, all the activity on the platform, their interests, their goals, their social connections. It's really quite a rich data set. And our job is to harness insights from that data set for, for a couple of different purposes. Uh, one is to feed to our product team to help them understand what is working, what, what gets people engaged, what's helping them change their behavior, and what's helping them sustain that engagement and behavior change over time. Mm -hmm. So we feed the data. You know, this, this feature really is successful. This feature is not. Um, here's how people are using this you know, in, a, in a way that we didn't expect them to use it and so forth. And so that data we feed, we feed to our product team. And then we also serve our clients, um, helping them to kind of understand what's working and what's not and how they can kind of change their program design, change their promotional strategy, change the content of their platform to make it more successful. And then we also provide them with data that they can use internally to build the business case for employee well-being, whether that's justifying the investment, calculating a return on investment or a value on investment uh, for, their, uh, for their resources that they're putting toward employee well-being. Yep. Um uh, you and I have talked a bit, and uh, I've, I've taken the position that today's traditional workplace wellness programs have 
largely failed because they're not strategic, they're not CEO-led, they're not whole person, they're mostly physical, they lack a cultural well-being, and they aren't measured. Uh, how strongly do you agree with that or disagree? Well, I think we have to sort of unpack it a little bit and, you know, kind of make sure we're, we're you know, comparing apples to apples and, you know, we have the same, you know, definition. So I mm-hmm. guess the first question I think we should talk about is what is traditional workplace wellness, right? Um, the way I see traditional workplace wellness is, uh, you know, very much top down. Um, it's very uh, focused on identifying the high cost, high risk employees and trying to get them to do something. Uh, it's very much focused on screening. Uh, biometric screening, health risk assessment, mm-hmm. and it's not very focused on engagement and sustainable behavior change. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so if that's what we mean by you know traditional um, workplace wellness, something that's inconvenient, that's intrusive, um, that is uh, not you know as voluntary as it, as it could or should be, um, and it's not actually engaging for the end user. Absolutely, I, I'd say that that's traditional workplace wellness that has failed. Um, I think we also have to talk about failing at what, right? So what is the, the original intent or goal of well-being? Um, is it to reduce healthcare costs? Well, yes, I would say largely traditional well-being has failed at reducing healthcare costs. Um, has it engaged people or increased their awareness of their health? Well, in fact, I, I would say that actually there's, there's some evidence showing that biometric screening has increased awareness for employees yeah. of their, you know, of their, of their numbers. And, and for some people that has led to you know, an aha moment um, or some type of impetus to make a change. Uh, so I think it's I think it's nuanced, uh, but I think at a broad level, traditional wellness, as we as I just defined it, has largely failed. Right. In 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 my view, uh, traditional workplace wellness has tended to focus on primarily the physical, and and that pretty much reflects uh, what had been the traditional practice of medicine, which. Uh, focuses on um, the physical and defines uh, health as the absence of illness or injury. Um, the, the real issues with regard to long-term lifestyle change for the better are usually mental and emotional, stress, depression, um, a variety of others. Um, so the the whole person approach to get them to a point where they are mentally and emotionally willing to engage is important. Would you agree with that? No, it's absolutely critical. Um, you know, when we talk about uh, well-being, which I think is sort of wellness 2.0, it's that yeah. evolution from physical uh, focus to something kind of more holistic um, is absolutely all about that um, yeah. mental well-being. And then even, you know, going even broader to, to financial well-being. Um, you know, we, we have sort of nine thrive areas that we focus on at Bridge and Paul. So beyond just physical activity and, and nutrition and weight management, mm-hmm. which are three of them, you know, we focus on sleep. We focus on stress. We focus on financial well-being, mm-hmm. on your family relationships, on your community involvement. You know, are you being productive at work? Are you learning new things? So there's a variety of, uh, of dimensions that we believe influence somebody's overall well-being, the quality of their life, and the length of their life. And um, that's sort of how we approach it. That makes sense. Um, you, you you use the word engagement, and and I guess there are engagement engagement occurs at two levels one of which is engagement in well-being programs, and the other is uh, employee engagement in their work activities. Um, let's talk about that for a bit and what its importance is. What, what could you tell us about that? 
Well, every year we go out to the market and we survey employers all around the world and we ask them, um, you know, why are you investing in employee well-being? What are your strategic objectives? And this year, for the first year, employee engagement came out as number one, uh, above all else, above mm-hmm. reducing healthcare costs, uh, above uh, improving productivity, above retention and, and recruiting talent. It was employee engagement. We want our employees sure. to be more engaged, and this is why we're investing, and that's our primary measure. And so that, you know, it's been creeping up over over the past few years, but finally it overtook all of those other reasons for investing in employee well-being. So I think it's the most important um, thing, at least that's what employers are telling us, and we should probably listen to them. So, uh, so I think that's something we need to really focus on when we say, does wellness work? Um, if employers are investing in it to improve employee engagement, then that has to be the measure. So do employee well-being programs improve employee engagement? Um, I think one of the challenges with employee engagement is there's no one universal metric. Every company looks at it in a different way. There are lots of different tools and studies and surveys. Um, I think the best way that we've been able to approach it is simply to ask employees, Mm -hmm. you know, do you feel more engaged in your work? Do you look forward to coming to work? Do you have more energy when you're at work? You know, do you feel more productive? And when we ask those questions, we see that participating in a well-being program significantly improves employee perception in all of those areas. Yeah. Uh, they report an improvement in every single one of them. So I think employers see that, and that's why they've continued to invest in well-being, even in the face of a lot of data that has shown that perhaps it's not reducing healthcare costs as much as they would have hoped. Perhaps it's not having all of the benefits that they thought it did. Um, but the employees continue to tell them we like these programs when they're when they're not you know 1.0 when they're the 2.0 well-being programs. They like them and they participate in them and then they feel better after doing it and they feel more productive and they feel more engaged. And, and I think that's really what employers are after. Sure. Yeah, if you, I, I, I bet if you ask the CEO, would you, which would you prefer, a 10% reduction in your health care coverage costs or a 10% improvement in engagement and productivity or a 10% improvement in your uh, voluntary turnover, they'd probably choose the latter two because, um, quite frankly, it's more money. I think that's right. And I think, you know, any good leader knows that, you know, getting your employees to be more productive and engaged and retaining those employees over time is going to produce dividends far greater than saving a few hundred dollars a year on healthcare costs. Um, so, you know, healthcare is, is, yes, it's the largest line item other than, you know, payroll. Um, but, you know, we pay our employees a lot of money and we expect mm-hmm. them to, to produce a lot of work and, and um, you know, healthcare costs are a small part of it. I, I assume... There are even studies out there that state that companies with superior workplace health programs do better on stock returns than their peers. Have you heard anything about that? I have. And in fact, you know, we work closely with Dr. Ron Getzel mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, I know Dr. Ray Fabius and they're two of the, the authors of, of some of these recent studies. Uh, we were inspired by those studies and we decided to do one of our own. And so we actually looked at 49 publicly traded companies that have been with Virgin Pulse uh, for at least two years. And what we did is we looked at their participation um, in our program, and then we looked at um, their publicly available financial information. And by looking at their public filings, we were able to um, come up with a, a, a calculation. It's called the human capital ROI ratio. Uh, and the human capital ROI ratio is kind of a fancy way of saying, what is the impact in profit for every dollar that I invest in my people. 
So we go, we go in the company, we look at the total cost of their workforce and how that changes over time. And then we look at their productivity, their, sorry, their profitability uh, per, per FTE and how that changes over time. And we were able to look at two years before they joined Virgin Pulse and two years after they joined. And what we showed is that in the two years before they joined, there was no difference in their productivity gains versus their peer companies in the S&P 500 um, or in their industry. Once they joined Virgin Pulse and launched, they saw significant improvements in productivity versus their peers. And the higher the participation they got in our program, the higher their productivity improvement went up uh, versus their peers. So this, I think, was another confirmatory study that shows a strong correlation between investing in the health and well-being of your employees and the success of your company. Right. Now, obviously, we can always you know, pick apart these types of studies and say, you know, it's not a randomized control trial. It doesn't prove causation. And, and you know, that would be right. It doesn't prove causation. But at some point, we amass such a body of evidence that uh, it becomes hard to refute that these things are very strongly linked and you know and the best companies are investing in, in the health and well-being of their uh, of your employees so I think what I try to ask employers is do you want to be one of these companies that's outperforming the S&P 500 and you know seeing significant gains in productivity you should probably follow the things that they're doing and this is one of the main things that they're doing where do you see employee based healthcare coverage going in the future well, you know, I think we can sort of see this the, the train wreck happening. You know, healthcare costs continue to rise. Uh, employers continue to push more costs uh, to their employees because otherwise it comes out of their profits. And, uh, you know, the situation gets bad for everybody. Uh, costs are going up for employers, costs are going up for employees, and there's sort of no end in sight. Um, but yet we seem to be sort of stuck uh, at the national level in our politics and in our government. And, and I don't think, uh, you know, we're ready to embrace a single payer, you know, plan yet. Eventually we're going to get to a breaking point, uh, where there will be no other way. It will be totally unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we'll, we'll eventually be forced to, to kind of take the medicine that so many other industrialized nations around the world have, have already taken. Um, but, uh, so I, I see that's where we're headed in the future. And so I, I really see well-being being delinked, um, from healthcare coverage, because if it's, only about healthcare coverage, then it's really only about reducing healthcare costs. But as we just talked about, you know, well-being is about so much more than that. And so mm-hmm. I think it's being decoupled. I see that happening uh, in the workplace. In fact, we have some customers that that have told us, you know, please don't talk to us about healthcare costs. We don't want to use that language. We don't want any, you know, measurement in that area. We're investing in our employees. One because it's the right thing to do, and two because we think it'll drive performance and productivity. So let's focus our conversations on that, and and let's avoid, you know, talking about healthcare. And so uh, those are some of the forward-looking, you know, really progressive organizations. But I think I think other companies will continue to follow if they do move away from offering health insurance to their employees. I do not see them moving away from investing in employee well-being because, it, as you said, it's become strategic. Um, it's becoming more important at the CEO level and the board level, and they're realizing you can't be an employer of choice without investing in your people. Uh, Rajiv, it's been a pleasure talking with you. You've done very well, and you're doing good things as well. I wish you success. Thank you so much, Jim. It's been a pleasure to uh, catch up with you, and uh, thanks for your interest in, uh, in, in my point of view. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing. To subscribe to this podcast series, visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com, where you'll find resources to help organizational leaders achieve tangible returns 